Hi, I'm Jason Marcos. And I'm Barry Hamaguchi. This is Flop Redeemer, the weekly podcast where we discuss the stories behind our favorite pop flops and why you should give these songs a second chance. Today I'm talking about A Brand New Day, a show-stopping number from 1975's The Wiz, a movie musical starring Diana Ross and Michael Jackson, and which to this day, I still haven't seen. That's a big, big admission. <laughs> we, are, we are going in blind. Um... Only the yeah. only our only our mind's eye uh, understanding of the cultural significance of. I have seen The Wiz though. I was well, maybe were four in... or five years old. Oh really? Not I mean the TV in, version, but... the Diana Ross version. I, I I remember seeing bits and pieces of it on television as a kid. Yeah. Um, but I don't remember much about it i remember ease on down the road i feel like everyone knew ease on down everybody the road. knows I, yeah i you know it, and that's the thing about this 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 musical is that you know you probably have some cultural understanding of it like you know what it is but like to your like just like you i haven't actually sat and watched the whole thing like i've seen clips yeah. i've done i've done this but there's sort of this general sort of i mean even, even as a kid i knew it was not perceived in the best light yeah, yeah, it kind of has like a aura of failure around it. I mean, I even even I want to say as like a young teenager, I knew that there was something weird about Diana Ross playing Dorothy. <laughs> well, so why don't we just get into okay. it? Because okay, so, but, but yeah. like you know, the my other cultural context for the Wiz is that my high school did like the Broadway production mm. of um The Wiz as our high school musical my junior year. Strangely, I was thinking about this because I I designed the costumes for this show. Um, I only remember actually constructing two or three different costumes. And other than that, I was like, I have no recollection of this musical at all. I did three other three other musicals in high school. I remember all of them. I remember moments. I remember numbers. I remember being present for production. This particular musical, I have no solid recollections of except i made i made a bunch of halter tops and mini skirts because the poppies in the whiz are um are sex workers oh yes so they all had to be dressed up in little like um fun sex worker outfits (laughs) Um, they're like trying they're like they're like opium right they're like trying to lure them away yeah yeah, yeah. so we had a bunch of we had a bunch of uh like the song girls that like the dance Mm -hmm. team in our high school like a bunch of them are the poppies and i had to make them a bunch of like mini skirts and halter tops um but yeah. Oh, you know what? Okay. So, I mean, this goes into like the cultural well, it, sh- it should be explained that like for anyone who doesn't know, The Wiz is a 1975, was a 1975 musical first and then a 1978 movie that is an adaptation, like an all black adaptation of The mm-hmm. Wizard of Oz. Correct. Correct. Not, not about Cheese Wiz, not about... <laughs> Um, not a wizard. It's not, not the guy in Fantasia. Yeah, not that movie about Fred Savage who can play uh, video games really well. Is that who um, it was? Yeah, no, so. Fred Savage was Little Monsters. Was he also the wizard? Do you remember that movie? I don't remember. Oh, like I just a little remember kid the that VHS. could play video games really well. I feel like I remember the VHS cover. Oh, but anyway, I mean to go into like the cultural importance of the Wiz. Okay, so I went to a high school that was like forty percent Chinese people. And then overall was probably like close to 70% Asian, you know? Oh, yeah. Okay. I was doing the math and I was like, wait, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, because San Francisco had this rule. It was like an affirmative action type of um, 
requirement that no school could have more than 40% of a particular ethnicity in, in its student body. Mm. Um, and our school was constantly in trouble because we constantly had like too many Chinese American students. Um, which, and, and, and so, and this is very controversial because like the black student population of our school is very, very low. I think my class of a class of like 700 had maybe 10 black students. Mm-hmm. And I remember that in my junior year, when it was announced that our uh, musical department would be doing the whiz, um, a lot of the like usual musical theater suspects in our high school who were predominantly white students were mm-hmm. outraged. And it was unfair. Um, they were being excluded. Um, you know, won't someone please think about the white students? And they started a petition. They started a petition to basically say, like, this is unfair to all the white students at the school. Like, only the black kids are going to have a chance to get the lead roles in this in this musical, basically. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, this was, like, the late 90s. And I remember being like, you guys are so stupid. <laughs> you are so stupid. <laughs> <laughs> As like, we have had nothing because you have to understand that also, like, given that my high school was majority Asian, there were also not a lot of white students in my high school. But yeah, overwhelmingly, this the leads in our musicals were traditionally white because we were doing stuff like we'd done like Gypsy. And mm-hmm. we I was going to say, like the traditional like high school musical repertoire. Yeah. And it wasn't to say that like all 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 the student body hadn't been given equal access to like audition for all these previous shows. It was just that like, by and large, I think, I guess the majority of the musical theater folks in our high school were the white students. Mm. And I mean, at the end of the day, it didn't prevent like at least half of the roles to be cast with white students for the whiz. Yeah. Anyway. Um, that's my only recollection of the Wiz, and then well, the fact that you, Diana you Ross, Diana Ross is too old, too old to play Dorothy. Well, and we will get into that it's because it's so so confusing. Well, and it's probably, I mean, like it is one of the biggest reasons that they clock with like this movie failing. Yeah, like there's just such a, a disconnect there. Yeah, because which that is what I had always heard, and that and I had had watched the opening of this movie before. Um, and I couldn't I, at the time. I couldn't get through. I was like, yeah. this is so long, and it's kind of slow. What were you going to say? Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that my one other recollection of doing The Wiz in high school was that when we started the production and I read the script, I was like, oh, I thought Dorothy was supposed to be a 40-year-old school teacher in New York City. <laughs> no, she's supposed to be 24. She's supposed to be like... <laughs> well, and we'll we'll get into anyway, that. Oh, sorry. Yeah. And, and, Wait, oh, do you by the music? By, <laughs> no, by the way, by, by the yeah. by, something, mm. something is up in Northeast LA today. I have been surrounded by helicopters and sirens. So I will not be oh. making any effort to work around that sound. I know a lot of okay. people, they try to pause and they like, you know, but we don't have time for that. We don't have time no, we don't. to no, work around. No, no. So I will, we will have the sirens in the background. You will just know we're in a state of emergency. There's probably someone running around my neighborhood with a knife. That's the last time there was a, um, a helicopter basically parked right above my house just for like an hour, I called the non-emergency services hotline and I was like, hello, um, 
there's a helicopter that has been hovering above my house for about 45 minutes. Is it okay for me to leave my house? They're like, oh, let me, you know, let me check around. So they, I guess they called like the local police department. They're like, oh, it's, mm-hmm. you know, on this street near you, there's a man running around with a knife stabbing people. I'm like, okay, cool. Wait, is he stabbing people or threatening to? Well, no, no, not today. This is the last oh. time there was a helicopter. Oh, 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 oh. I was like, oh. I think what had actually happened was that there was a domestic dispute. A man had stabbed someone in their driveway and been and like been running away from police with a knife down the street. I see. I see. I see. Don't run with knives. Don't stab people. PSA. No, no. And the, the other PSA is that, you know, I'm going to try something controversial. Uh-huh. I'm going to try and finish this in, you know, 45 minutes. We're going to get through from it now. We're okay? doing really good. So I think so. You know I what? I think so. Wait, have we gotten through the intro? No, you know what? But we do have to let people know before we get started. Well, I have that... to let people know. Yeah, go ahead. Because it's pink in the script. We, <laughs> I, we, I, we meaning me, <laughs> have Way. to let people know <laughs> that we have a website. We have a website. It's called www.flopperteamer.com. Every week we post the new episodes there, um, along with a playlist featuring a lot of the songs that we're going to talk about today. I wanted to remind everyone to rate, review, and subscribe on platforms. I think that helps us out a lot. We usually don't mention this till yeah. the end, but please rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. We're everywhere, I think. If we're not somewhere, you know what you can let do? Let us know. Email us at flopredeemer at gmail.com to let us know if we're lacking presence on a podcast platform that you prefer, and we will strongly consider it. Anyway, we'll be right back. Sounds good. Okay, so today I'm going to talk about the whiz, the the big number from the whiz called A Brand New Day. And as I mentioned before, like I have not seen this movie. So so you might be wondering, like, how do you even know about this song? So the other day, as I usually do, I think we've talked about this on the podcast before. While I'm working, I can't listen to podcasts. I have to listen to music. And mm-hmm. I also do not have time to just create these intricate playlists for work or whatever. And so... You know, I, I'll find a po- I'll find a playlist and I'll just like put it on. And you know, that day I happened to come across Showstoppers uh, in Spotify, and the description for Showstoppers is pure Broadway Nirvana featuring finales, eleven o'clock numbers, and big theatrical numbers. And if you know me, as you've listened to this podcast, that is little. I mean, that is like heaven for me. I'm like, you mm-hmm. give me like, you know the big ass number from a musical i'm here mm-hmm. for it so for example the first song on this is don't rain on my parade by barbara streisand um there's i'm telling you i'm not going and what i did for love etc so you know all these big numbers i'm kind of like blissing out while i'm working and all of a sudden this song comes on and it's, so so the song comes on and it sounds like a movie musical and when i say that Barry, let me know if you know what i mean there's a particular kind of strings that just kind of like vibrating strings that like used to open movies and movie musicals. Like I want to say like 50s, 60s, 70s. Like it's not like a classical music score. Mm-hmm. And it's not like Harry Potter, like where it's kind of, I mean, that's John Williams. Sounds sounds very classical. Yeah. It's like the opening of Sound of Music, you know, when it's just like strings it's like a tension. Mountains. It's kind of like a tension builder yeah, kind of yeah. 
build up sound. I, I mean, the, the movie musical aspect of it too, to me is like, and maybe it's also of this era is that there's like a cleanliness to the strings mm-hmm. that yeah, almost very sounds, bright. it almost sounds fake. Yeah. It's one of yeah. those things, I think in the 70s and 80s, especially, we started to hear a lot of strings and I'm like, this is so clean sounding. Like, is mm-hmm. this synthesized or like, how did they get this sound exactly? But it is, yeah. that, it's the opening it's like, to it. It's it's opening something. It's yeah. Uh, yeah. opening credits. And and it's usually like, it's, like if you think of like, um, well, I guess this is like not as good an example, but if you think of like West Side Story and it's like shots of the city. Mm-hmm. Right, like when it opens, or like big, you know, and and it's like before they had drones or whatever, so it's like you can see like, you know, the shakiness of the helicopter or the plane or whatever, and it's kind of grainy. Like that's the feeling, and I'm like, what is this? Yeah, and it's these strings, and oh, what were you gonna say? Oh no, I, was, I mean, my other example of it is, um, and this this visual will hopefully represent the sonic nature of this. What we're talking about, I think it's the opening to, um. One of the Muppets, Muppet, one of the Muppet movies. I think it's the Great oh. Muppet Caper. They're floating over London in a hot air balloon. Yes, and it's yes. just a, it's just a shot of blue skies, and it's yes. a swell of strings. Uh huh. They're like trilling strings. Yeah. And then their hot air balloon appears in the sky. It's very that. Yes. Yes. Exactly. Because it's like it's not used in almost anything else, right? Like it's only used for this kind of thing, and that's what set it apart. That's what made me realize because you know i'm listening to all these musical like broadway numbers yeah they, broadway numbers don't usually start like that because that that's there's not like a pod like a big yeah visual in a broadway i thing feel like especially something. for like the big number like the mm-hmm. finale number or you know what is it called the 11 o'clock number yeah i just yeah. think of the ones it goes right into it yeah usually. because you know these are normally the numbers that obviously appear at the end or towards the end or at a big turning point with a character that you're already familiar with. And so mm. a lot of them, I feel like start out with like a big statement, like a big song yeah. statement. I'm thinking of like, mm-hmm. um, what is it called? Rose's turn. Yeah. In gypsy. Ta-da. Yeah. Like <laughs> it doesn't really have a lot of buildup. It's like, um, you remember in the movie trick, um, yes. the movie trick starring, uh, Nev Christ- Campbell's Christ- brother. Christian Campbell. Yes, and uh, Tori Spelling. Yes. Um, he's an aspiring musical theater writer, and his mentor at one point says, like, you know, what is this thing you're doing? You're doing, giving me a verse and then a chorus, and then a verse and the chorus. He's like, no one wants to hear the verse. He's like, just give us what we want. Give us the chorus. Chorus, chorus, chorus. <laughs> and I feel like that, that th- 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 this song is kind of anti that. It's, it's, it's got the buildup. It's got the buildup. And so, you know, it's got this trilling strings, as you said, and it kind of draws it out and you can tell it's building towards something because there's like, it sounds like the, like a clock bell tower, you know, like the, as it's starting to get bigger. And then the song just explodes into a choir of cheers and a funky disco beat. And I was like, what am I listening to? This is amazing. (laughs) And I'm like, oh my God, I wasn't expecting this on like a Tuesday (laughs) at 10 a.m. And then I hear this familiar male voice. I can't quite place it, but it's a familiar male voice. It's like R&B style singing the opening lines. Everybody look around because there's a reason to rejoice, you see. And then Diana Ross comes in strong. And like Diana Ross, like just belting like, throughout this song as you've never heard her belt before. And so I'm like hooked because like, you know, 
I'm not a I was not a huge Diana Ross fan growing up <laughs> because I always you know I always thought her voice was really thin thin and and you know it was just kind of you know I mean I liked her as the Supremes but then not known I've as really a, not known to, as a belter Diana Ross no no I mean she's got kind of a del- even though she does have a really strong voice um and an excellent singer but like I came to appreciate her a lot later in life yeah. but even when she's doing like belting it's like one part of the song at the end. And this song, it's just like high energy and she's just going for it the whole time. And so that was my introduction to this song, A Brand New Day. It just kind of like exploded into my ears and I was like, what is this? And then I look and I'm like, it's The Wiz. And I'm like, how did I not know that The Wiz had music that I would like? (laughs) You know, like I know of it as a song. I mean, I know of it as a movie. Obviously, it's a musical, but I'd never really heard the songs. And I think I think you mentioned Ease on Down the Road. I have heard that song. It's very disco-y, but it, it doesn't stick with it. It's, I mean, for me, that just wasn't a thing. Yeah. However, this song really caught me. And so I, you know, I started looking it up. And the male voice that I mentioned at the beginning that opens the song is actually Luther Vandross. And he wrote the song for the original 1975 Broadway musical. And at the time, he was singing backup as a session singer. And he was writing, uh, you know, jingles for commercials. This is in 1978. His breakthrough single, Never Too Much, comes out in 1981. So this is before he's like Mm -hmm. really hit it big and everyone knows who he is. Yeah. So it was interesting to hear his voice because it's familiar. And yet it does sound a little, I don't want to say unformed, but it's like, it's not the Luther Vandross you know necessarily, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. right? So then you have Diana Ross. And so Diana Ross at this time is probably like the biggest pop star in the world. This The musical yeah. comes out in 1978. She'd left the Supremes in 1970. And later that year, she released Ain't No Mountain High Enough, which itself is a cover of the Tammy Terrell and Marvin Gaye um, version of that song and that became her first number one single so she starts the decade leaving the Supremes the biggest girl group at the time mm-hmm. um, comes out with Ain't No Mountain High Enough which is a smash the following year she does Lady Sings the Blues it becomes a number one soundtrack album she gets a Golden Globe and Oscar nominations for portraying Billie Holiday 1973 she does a duet album with Marvin Gaye 1974 she becomes the first black woman to co-host the Oscars with like Burt Reynolds and a couple other stars 1975 she's in the movie Mahogany and the theme for Mahogany becomes her third number one hit sorry is Mahogany the movie where she's a fashion designer yes okay yes it's also it's not like known for being very good oh okay uh but it is known for that song. The theme from Mahogany, Do You Know Where You're Going To, mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, it becomes, like I said, in her number third number one hit. 1976, so this is like year after year after year. 1976, she does Love Hangover, which is, is is I mean, a, a cool song. It yeah. starts very, like, uh, like, slow, mid-tempo, and then becomes like a disco anthem. And it's a classic of the genre. Um seminal for her i think in terms of keeping her like cool because like she yeah over this time she's like progressing away from the motown sound into something that's sort of distinctly like diana ross i, mm-hmm. I don't know how else to describe it very sultry and you know we're moving through like the disco era with her mm-hmm. um i think that this is where her kind of like the non-beltiness of her voice kind of pays off for her is that yeah she starts to capitalize a lot on like the cooing. Yeah. She's a very so good. True. She's very good at cooing and just emoting. 
Yeah. And her voice is so like, it's, you know, she's got like, I think I've described it before as like a songbird voice. Yeah. And it kind of lends itself to that like mid seventies, easy listening, but like verging yeah. on disco kind of sound. Well, and if you think of Ain't No Mountain High Enough, and you think of how she does the verses to that song, it's like, if you need me, mm-hmm. call me. No matter where you are, no matter how far, don't you uh-huh. worry. You know? And it's like, the, I mean, I love that. I love her version of that song, especially towards the end when he hit the bridge and just like she's doing the ad libs. And like, that's when I come in. That's where I really came into my full like Diana Ross appreciation. I was mm-hmm, like, she mm-hmm. is a diva unlike other any other. Like, she just owns it. You can like feel her hair, the giant <laughs> hair and the... <laughs> the breeze um but you know so, so so that's what she'd kind of been known for 1976 the love hangover 1978 is the whiz um and she's obviously on the soundtrack for that and i'm, I'm just trying to like show the progression like who she is by the time she does this um 1979 is her album the boss which is kind of like probably the definitive diana ross album it has the singles i'm coming out and upside down so two of her most iconic songs and then 1980, she comes out with It's My Turn and Endless Love with Lionel Richie. So she kind of does the whole... It, it, the 70s were sort of Diana Ross's. Um, she comes out, 1980, Endless Love. It's her sixth and final number one single. So she's popular, but like, you know, she starts off... She kind of owns the decade and then kind of closes it out. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just want to say that in terms of, Barry, to your point... When she plays Dorothy, and this is one of the things, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, like one of the reasons it it was such a jarring thing for Diana Ross to play this 24-year-old homely school teacher is that by 1978, Diana Ross has spent the better part of the decade hammering home that she is the most glamorous, iconic pop star in the mm-hmm. world. And, you know, certainly not a 24-year-old who's never gone south of, what, 125th Street? Yeah. Or whatever. Like, so it's like, there's a big disconnect. Yeah. There. Bordering on, like, agoraphobic. <laughs> agoraphobic? Like, a, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, She's, like, yeah, stuck yeah. in her aunt's house. Yeah, and, like, never <laughs> like, leaves. Yeah. I mean, we only, you only yeah. see her for that first scene until she runs out into the snowstorm where there's inexplicably a tornado in the middle of New York City. Um. But yeah, the the idea of Diana Ross, you know, after, you know, after have after getting over her love hangover, suddenly mm-hmm. becoming uh, a 24-year-old school teacher, a yeah, kindergarten singing. teacher who was afraid to start teaching high school. Right? And it's like it you know, like just 2 years before she was in a studio going, "Ah." Oh. <laughs> she's afraid right? to do that like, in front of young people. <laughs> Um, because she's afraid to be found out. But I mean, yeah. you know, it's so it's like jarring. And we'll talk about like how, what she did to get in this movie. And it's kind of it's kind of crazy. So I mean, it's but like keeping, in mind, keeping in mind also that not only is it jarring to see Diana Ross, you know, given her musical persona, play this role, but also the fact that this is not what the role originally was. Right. No, the role no. was originally like truer to the Wizard of Oz that Dorothy yeah. was a young a young woman, a young, a young girl. girl, like 16. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. She was 16. So, you know, so, so back to kind of like who's in this song, like what's capturing me. So it's like, you know, 
Luther Vandross, Diana Ross, and then you have Michael Jackson. And Michael Jackson, this was his first and last major film role. It's funny because one of the Wikipedias for this is like, he would later go on to star in Captain EO. And I was like, that is, I mean, iconic, but not the same. Yeah, when will they bring, I wonder, oh, I guess they probably won't ever be able to bring I, back Captain I EO. I feel like they probably won't, even though I loved that as a kid yeah. at Disneyland. Oh. That was amazing. Everything from our childhood will be ruined someday. <laughs> Well, you know, Michael Jackson was at a transition point in his career. Like when he did this, he was like winding down the Jackson five and hadn't come out with his first album yet. And he honestly, he wasn't the first choice for the director. Like the Mm -hmm. director wanted someone else. And um, he was able to convince him to hire him because like everyone thought he was just like this dumb kid not dumb kid but like you know the the precocious kid from the jackson five yeah and like no one because no one knew what he was gonna do or what he was capable of. yeah because this is like i mean for for the jackson five and diana ross like this is approaching the end of the motown era right like they yeah. all they all leave motown at this yeah. point because up to this point to your point like michael jackson was largely known for the jackson five mm-hmm. um he was now at this point he was like kind of getting up there in age, right? Like this is yeah. after most of the Jackson Five big hits that you know and love. Yeah. Um I mean people thought they were just gonna be because I think they were in Vegas at the time. And so people thought this is this is when you know you kind of you went to Vegas to die, right? Mm-hmm. Like it wasn't it wasn't like the residencies they have now. And so, you know, they were already kind of a they were becoming a legacy act. And actually Joe Jackson didn't want him to be in this movie because he thought it was gonna like mess with the Jackson 5 dynamic and like what he had going there. And yeah. so when they when they started production on this movie, um they moved they moved Michael Jackson and Latoya Jackson into an apartment in New York while they worked on the film. And it was the first time that he'd been away from his family. He was on his own. And so this is also the period where you start seeing, you know, those those fr- pictures of Michael Jackson's like a fresh-faced kind of young black star. I th- I think there are like there aren't a whole lot of images of him as a young black man, if that makes sense. Like mm-hmm. after that he kind of he starts going down the plastic surgery road and his his face starts to change, but like at the time this was like after Jackson 5 and like when he's young and so you see those black and white images of him with Liza Minnelli at Studio 54 um or with Brooke Shields, right? <laughs> like at the time this was around that time. Like I, I had always seen those pictures, but I didn't realize it was at, at this time in his career mm-hmm. that he was kind of on his own for the first time and, and doing this. The, the musical supervisor, the music supervisor for the movie was Quincy Jones. And so this, I found this fascinating that, so Quincy Jones had not met Michael Jackson prior to doing this musical. And it was his first time working with him. He dismissed him as first. He thought, he thought, you know, whatever, this kid, right? Like, he knew him from the Jackson 5, just thought he was like some kid. But while doing the movie, became really impressed with him, and they started getting closer. And Michael had actually asked him, like, do you have any recommendations? I'm going to do a debut. I'm going to do my solo debut. I need production recommendations. And... Over the course of this, they got close, and Quincy goes on to produce Off the Wall mm-hmm. for Michael Jackson. And that, I mean, and kind of the rest is music history, right? Like, yeah. uh, Off the Wall thriller. I mean, like, so much of our pop music history comes out of this collaboration. And I never knew the origin story was in this movie that, like, I had never seen. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, it's it's interesting to think about the fact that, you know, the Michael Jackson that emerges, especially in Thriller, right? I mm-hmm. feel like Thriller was when Michael Jackson really started to become like the um, otherworldly echelon of celebrity. celebrity. Mm-hmm. But then prior to that, you know, being part of the Jackson 5 as a kid and then trying to bridge that gap. Because right, he was he was originally going to be with the Jacksons after they left Motown and signed to MCA. But it was like off the success of his solo stuff that he left the Jacksons. And then the yeah. rest of them, I forget who the fifth Jackson brother was that rejoined to take mm, Michael's mm, place, mm. right? But, um, you know, Michael Jackson in the wrong hands easily could have gone the way of like, David Cassidy, yeah, right? Like Someone trying never... to transition from kind of a cutesy novelty kid into an adult, you know, obviously David Cassidy is iconic, but not in the way that Michael Jackson yeah, capitalized yeah. I mean, he could, he and could found be like, his lane. He could be like a Donny Osmond, mm-hmm. who's like, you know, I mean, he's successful. People are still in demand, but like, you don't think of him as being like the zeitgeist, like on the, you know capturing the zeitgeist and writing that writing that all the way so yeah i found that fascinating um you know just yeah that that whole music because because i don't know i just always assumed quincy knew michael jackson or something you know like from that time so so reading that when i dug into the whiz really kind of i was like whoa that's that's crazy because so many of the things that i love you especially wouldn't think that something as fortuitous as Quincy Jones meeting Michael Jackson would happen on something like this that largely in pop culture is so maligned. Well, and what's crazy is because you you look at this and you realize like this was like that they I mean, they brought out like so many of the greatest like black stars and contributors to do this movie. Like this was this was the most expensive movie musical made at the time. Like to you know, they were trying to do this huge thing. This is the end of the 1970s. This is like towards the tail end of the black exploitation and the um, you know, the movie area era where there were like black centered movies and you know, very kind of seen as like a very vibrant period in 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 black creative like history. And so, you know, they got everyone. That's why everyone's like working on this, right? Um, and especially because the the musical, as I mentioned in 1975, um was a big hit. It ran for four years. It won seven Tonys. Like it was, it legitimized an all black cast. And so people were taking advantage of the fact that like movie, the movie studio was putting their, their enormous budget behind an all black musical, which had like not happened right Mm -hmm. at the time. And as we'll see, like did not happen again because of how poorly the movie did. Um, The writer for the movie was Joel Schumacher, which I found hilarious um because i'm like oh he goes <laughs> like what like joel schumacher director um, of batman well, forever batman forever with the nipples and the cod pieces mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know famous like famously <laughs> yeah 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 well also also like bad boys no is that yeah joel schumacher was bad boys right i can't um, i just we just watched batman we watched forever. batman returns last night oh so i was like oh like batman forever is the one that like tim burton left and then joel schumacher took over and it that. because that's the one that has like mr freeze the riddler right tommy lee tommy oh. lee jones as tommy lee uh, jones tommy lee jones and jim carrey are in batman forever i think it's the one after that. batman and robin is the one with alicia silverstone yeah Uma i think he did that one too yeah yeah and, yeah. and arnold schwarzenegger yes yes 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, Joel yeah, Schumacher. So, so Joel Schumacher, he didn't. So you know, you were talking about the the you did the musical version, the the sorry, the Broadway version in your high school. Uh, he didn't use any of the musicals writing in the film, and so well, it, they, they were they, like, it's kind they of their absolutely own thing. Could not. Well, they couldn't they couldn't make it work with Diana Ross. They couldn't no. be like, okay, ma'am, you're 16 now. <laughs> um, so that didn't work. Well, because also, and again, I I only have like really tiny recollections of this, but the central conflict of Diana Ross's character as a 24 year old school teacher who is afraid to strike out on her own is almost like the. I feel like it's almost the opposite of what the traditional Dorothy. Problem she like is, wants to go away. Yeah, right? like, like doesn't she want to go away? Yeah, so she in, longs in the, to be somewhere over the rainbow. <laughs> yeah, so in this in this instance, it's like they re, they reconnoitered the whole thing to be like, oh, like her aunt is encouraging her, like you mm-hmm. need to break out on your own, you need to start doing things, and mm-hmm. you know. But Diana Ross, uh, Diana Ross, Dorothy, like you know, she's afraid, she doesn't want to. She's afraid, yeah. And that's yeah. my that, that, that anyway. That's the recollection I have of the brief bits of it i watched when i was maybe five or six years old <laughs> well you know the director was sidley lumet okay. or sorry sidley lumet um it, so i was like i know that name like oh sydney lumet directed the whiz right sydney lumet directed 12 angry men he directed dog day afternoon he directed network and he directed the 1974 Murder on the Orient Express with Lauren Bacall and like all these other people. So it's like one of the classic murders on the Orient Expresses because it's been remade. But, um, you know, has has a lot of experience with these casts, big casts, you know, iconic movies, Oscar nominated films. Um, you know, he's won he, by this point. He'd won like I believe he'd won like four Oscars. So it was just kind of crazy to me that he'd been brought in. At the same time, though, I he had not done a musical, so I, I think you can kind of tell a little bit. But <laughs> um, you know, just from the just from the clips that I've seen, um, so you know, all, I, I'm just going through the list of like what, who are all these people? The chorus for this song, there's like a big choir, and there's like. 30 people credited for for doing the chorus of this song. Among those, I just wanted to point out, Patty Austin is in there. And Patty Austin, you know, you probably know her from Baby Come to Me and all of those songs. Um, my favorite ver- song from Patty Austin is an Ella Fitzgerald cover called Hard Hearted Hannah. Okay. <laughs> and I want to put that in the playlist because <laughs> I love that song. I want to like do that song. <laughs> it's amazing. <laughs> Patty Austin, hard-hearted Hannah. Luther Vandross, as I mentioned. Roberta Flack is in this chorus, as well as Sissy Houston. Sissy Houston, famously Whitney Houston's mother. So, um, and and I think I recognized quite a few names in there from the documentary 20 Feet from Stardom, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of talks about all of the different backing vocalists and the different session singers. So I, I, I recognized a lot of names in there. Um, so there's a lot of people on this song, in this movie, how did it come about? Uh, you know, we talked about the Broadway musical. So the Broadway musical originated in 1975 with Stephanie Mills as the uh, original Dorothy. Um, and it's interesting, the Stephanie Mills thing, it, it all of a sudden it like comes to me like why there are two versions of the song Home. <laughs> there's Diana Ross's version, there's Stephanie Mills' version. Stephanie Mills comes out later. But like 
So this gets into like the drama around the production of this. Mm -hmm. Stephanie Mills was originated the role. She's she was a teenager when she when the when the musical comes out. She is slated to be in the movie. And so Diana Ross is like, absolutely not. Because this was this was a Motown films production. And so Barry Gordy, who's head of Motown, you know, had 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 decided to in the 70s create Motown films and uh, that was to kind of create to create it's it's kind of like t- t- Tyler Perry, you know, like having like a black uh, black focused entertainment production machine to mm-hmm. really, you know, if they're not being made, like this is how we're going to get them made, and so you know that's where you get. Um, I don't know if Lady Sings the Blues is from that. I, I have to look that up, but Billy D. Williams uh, was uh, one of the Motown films like actors hmm. so that was that may have been one uh, mahogany was one of them um the whiz was the eighth and final film to come out of this studio okay um barry gordy and diana ross were famously like intertwined romantically mm-hmm. you know he was the head of motown as i said there's a lot of if you go back into like motown lore there's a lot of like a lot of the drama around like why Diana Ross gets to be the lead and how she gets pushed to be like a person on her own. A he was like this. He was like her Tommy Mottola. Yeah. Kinda. But like, but not, not like she wasn't locked in a tower or anything, but no, she was like her Clive Davis. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Maybe yeah. Right. Somewhere, like, somewhere like, in know. that realm. Her, yeah, her Matthew just, Knowles, except not her dad. Yeah. Yeah. Like definitely <laughs> pushing her and, uh, you know, caused a lot of friction with a lot of the other Motown artists for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, because, you know, it was, it was widely believed that Diana got just special treatment um, and also kind of got what she wanted. She went from not being the lead singer of the Supremes originally to being the lead singer of the Supremes to then it becoming Diana Ross and the Supremes. To then just being Diana Ross, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. a movie career, a Golden Globe, you know, yeah. decades and decades worth of, um, you know, ascension yeah, that yeah. Florence Ballard certainly did not get. No, no. And, and I mean, they've had, they had a contentious relationship when they were working on Mahogany, I guess the original director had left uh, and... Barry Gordy like decided to take over directing for that. And he and Diana Ross got into it and she left the film so that by like the end of the movie, they were shooting part of her scenes with like a secretary who played her body double essentially because like she just wasn't there anymore. So did they so do like, lots all of this... like wide shots and yeah, re- rear yeah, angles? Yeah, yeah. Okay. It's kind of crazy. And so now like, I have to the, rewatch you know... the I only wa- I think I've only seen Mahogany once when like VH1 used to screen all of like the movies that rock, mm-hmm. like all the music mm-hmm. based movies. Mm-hmm. So I think I've only seen Mahogany once and you made me, I'll have to rewatch it with this in mind. Yeah. So, so that contentious, right? So the, the movie's going into production. Sony's supposed to, to do, to partner with Motown. They're supposed to put it together. Well, Diana Ross wants to be cast as Dorothy, even though it's already going to Stephanie Mills. Everyone, producers, director, they're like, Absolutely not. You are a 33-year-old woman. This is a 16-year-old, you know, like it's not going to work, right? Mm-hmm. So she goes around and she goes to the, um, she goes, I, th- I think it's Universal. She, she, she meets this producer, Rob Cohen, and she convinces him to come on board to produce the movie with the stipulation that she be cast as Dorothy. 
So she goes outside of the system and like works. So this producer comes on and says, yes, I will make this film with Universal, but only if you can, but but with uh, Diana Ross as the lead. So the original director leaves. He's like, no. Like I, he was like, you know, Diana Ross is a fantastic actress. She is a terrific dancer. She is not Dorothy. She yeah. is not a. She is not this character. And so he leaves. That's when they bring in Sidney Lumet. So Sidney Lumet comes in. Sony is like, this sucked. Like, no, we're not going to be part of this. So they leave, and Universal agrees to make this movie. So it's it is at the time. I don't want to say it was a scandal. It wasn't a scandal, but it was kind of. In the press, it was shocking the the lengths to which Diana Ross had gone to basically create a vehicle for herself that she didn't really fit in. Mm-hmm. Right? Everyone was kind of like it was what was it was like the the biggest example of sheer will. I think was what one like the New York Times called it, uh, like in entertainment history. Right? Um, so, so. You know, they go into production. It is the most expensive film musical ever made. The movie is when it comes out is critically panned. Um, it it just like there are almost no good reviews. Uh, Diana Ross's acting and singing uh, is uh, is is acclaimed. Like people praise her for that, but they're like she's not. But she's too old for this. Like it's it's just so jarring. And they mm-hmm. they talk about how like. They make her like oddly unattractive. There's like a trying to make her kind of dowdy. Like you know, you were talking about her being agoraphobic as the char- the character being agoraphobic. Well, not that, not that she is, but that she's not almost that she there. Is. Yeah, but that she's like a shut in, right? So so she like, shuts she herself be, off from you know opportunity. Yeah, yeah. So she can't be like glamorous, and so it kind of goes in this other direction where it's like okay, and it makes her look even older than thirty three, honestly. Um, but again, she's supposed to be playing a twenty four year old. Michael Jackson actually gets really good reviews because he's fun. Like people hadn't seen him in this. So he's like kind of a bright spot. And a lot of the other character actors who'd been around for a long time, um, famous black entertainers were, you know, got excellent reviews, but Diana Ross almost, I mean, the, the negative reception to her and the role and the fact that the movie, the movie is quite long. um, (laughs) Just, you know, it kind of drags it down. The movie doesn't make money. And what ends up happening, the impact of this, the biggest music, movie musical ever made with an all and 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 that it's all black. Mm-hmm. The fact that it does not succeed, it gives Hollywood studios a reason to steer clear of all black uh focused cast or all black focused big budget movies. This is 1978. You don't see that until the late 80s with Spike Lee. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um and then John Singleton in the early 90s. So it kills it for essentially a decade. Yeah. It also kills Diana Ross's acting career. She does not act in a movie again. And, you know, if you think about it, like she, like I said, like she'd come out of that decade or basically made it through that decade as like the biggest star. So it kills that. It kills Motown movies. <laughs> like this was the eighth and final one of those. Um, there were a couple exceptions to like the all black cast movies uh, in, you know, before you get uh, Spike Lee, uh, the color purple came out in the mid eighties, but it's like one like versus like there was a run of them in the seventies. Right. Mm-hmm. When you think about, um, shaft and, 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 yeah. and, and, you know, all of those movies. So this essentially killed it. Yeah. I'm not super familiar with like 
kind of like the politics of black exploitation films. Um, they basically wanted to cast themselves in these characters that they saw f- the other people were getting cast in. And so they basically created an ecosystem where they could be the star mm-hmm. and to kind of take the story themselves yeah. as opposed to being written as the pimp. They could be the pimp or what, you know, I'm just using that as an example, but yeah. there, there was a lot of films at that time where they made badass characters for themselves. Mm-hmm. And it was just kind of, it was it was a statement in terms of being like, well, we can write this for ourselves rather than you telling us who we are. Yeah. Because I remember, I mean, I've, I remember in high school, we went through a period of watching a lot of like um, old Pam Greer movies. Mm. And it's like, it's interesting because on the one hand, it's like, you know, these are, these are predominantly black cast movies. A lot of them do deal with like sex work, drugs, mm-hmm. gangs, mm-hmm. at least, the, I mean, the Pam Greer ones, like Foxy Brown and Coffee mm-hmm. and... Coffee too, Foxy Brown too. Um, You know, so I was always just curious about that. Like, I'm like, oh, like even the name name of it, black exploitation. I was never sure. Like, oh, is this like a is this a culturally like a positive move? But I guess it. I mean, in the grand scheme of things, like at the time, like these were like the biggest vehicles for Mm -hmm. black visibility, and it was probably Mm -hmm. very revolutionary, right? Yeah. Um, And it just reminds. I mean, it just reminds me of the fact that. what does it they say about like kind of like if you in Hollywood, like if you are a white man, like you are allowed to fail upwards. Mm-hmm. But if you're if you're a woman, if you're a person of color, like your first failure is like the end of your career. Well, and that it killed it for an entire industry, basically. Yeah. Not just, like, the person involved with this. Like, Sidney Lumet went on to do other things, right? Joel Schumacher went on to do other things. Um, But this was kind of the end for, like, an entire genre of of movie making, of storytelling, right? Like, to your point, like, it's it's crazy. And, And what it did, what it meant was that, like, you know, so Dreamgirls comes out in 1982. Dreamgirls, another... Uh, you know, iconic sort of all black musical that comes out in 1982. So that's four years after this movie and as that a stage was musical as, as a stage musical. And that was seen as a huge risk as well. And they, you know, the, like no one knew if it was worth it until it started selling out. And then Jennifer holiday, you know, with, and I'm telling you, I'm not going like becomes this sensation. Like it's, but, but even then, like, it's like the one. Mm-hmm. Right. And, you know, the, it's 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 sad. It was kind of crazy. So it made me want to go back and watch this movie and just be like, now I need to go back and see, like, do I think that this is a bad movie, quote unquote, just because it was panned? You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. like because because I know that in the time since this movie has become like a cult classic and it's incredibly popular, like among audiences, especially black audiences. Um, it's always, it's been on cable a lot. I know that's why, how you said, and that's honestly how I'd caught clips of it before. Um, and then there was a 2015. Well, prior to this, there it, it's been revived multiple times. Um, mm-hmm. Always with like, you know, some, sometimes with the original cast members, but like, um, or some of the original cast, I should say. Uh, but you know, it's, you know, it's it's got legs. It still work or it still is performed. And then in 2015, they did a live TV adaptation with I think it was Queen Latifah mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Mary J. Blige plays the the evil witch. Uh, Queen Latifah plays Glinda, I think. Yeah. Um, and then they did like a newcomer as Dorothy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind and of so, in the way that like I think they 
like Shin- there's Shanice like a tra- is there like a tradition like that. of that because i know that when yeah they did um hairspray the musical um the the idea was that they always wanted to cast a, a relative unknown or like a young mm. fresh face as um tracy in mm. hairspray yeah i guess that makes sense yeah um so you know it's i i do want to go back and then <laughs> You and I have talked about this. We have we haven't watched it just because it's it's very long and it's it's hard to to to, to coordinate right now to watch like a two and a half hour movie. Um, but we we you know that's kind of the story of the Wiz. The reason I love this song, um, and the reason if you do not know it, I think you should listen to it, is this song is full. It is the definition of full. Um, the soundtrack version is almost eight minutes long. The single is like three minutes long, but um, it has, like I said, it has strings. It has disco. It has a huge backing chorus of singers that's just like a wall of sound. It has Diana Ross belting like she's never belted before at the absolute top of her range and like killing it. That's Michael Jackson with his sort of style. There is a dance break, which you can, if you listen to the soundtrack version... Uh, you know, you're listening. You're like, "What's happening?" Because I hadn't. Uh, this was before I'd actually watched the clip, and um, you know, so this song takes place after the evil queen or the evil witch has been melted, and um, the workers that she's sort of enslaved to do all of her things, um, you know, they're singing a brand new day because you know they're rejoicing. It's like when the Munchkins like all all rejoiced in in, in Wizard of Oz. And um, there's this, it, it takes place in this factory, in her factory. And it's, when you get to the dance break, like I could hear it in the song. And when you watch it, it's it's kind of crazy and cool. Like it's so many dancers. <laughs> and it's that 1970s, it's like sort of modern dance, but very, but Broadway at the same time. It's like, it's just, it's kind of thrilling. Plus it's like, disco it's i don't know it's just everything um there's a high high kicking finale uh it just it's crazy so one of my favorite this is how i kind of relate to it one of my favorite showstoppers is from the musical hello dolly which we've talked about is it a dumb musical dumb it's classic it is classic i do not mean to say that it is not a classic or beloved but if you sit and you listen and you think about what it's about, it is dumb. But yeah. one of my absolute favorite songs is Put On Your Sunday Clothes. By whom? Which is, I like, I, I do like the Bette Midler and Gavin Creel version, the okay. one from the revival a little bit ago. Um, I went back and I listened to like a bunch of them. I think I like it. Be, I listened to like the Pearl Bailey version. I listened to, um, you know, the Carol, Carol Channing version. I went all the way back. I think I did settle on the production of the more recent version. <laughs> um, I don't necessarily like bets. I don't know. I just like the song. Okay. Right? I like the way I like the way it comes together. If you don't know it, it is a traditional like Broadway sort of showstopper before the intermission, right? Essentially, like it's that it's that where the chorus comes out. It's like it starts like Barry, like you were saying. There's like kind of a talk sung intro. Mm-hmm. You know where you where they're transitioning from the script into the song, and it brings in all the different characters like singing little parts, and then it kind of swells, swells, swells until it's like a huge chorus, everyone singing, and then you know in the musical like the train is leaving, 
<laughs> it's a whole big thing where like the train comes out, everyone gets on the train on stage, and then the train leaves. And it's it's a huge number. It kind of reminds you like why Broadway musicals are so popular sometimes and like how they hit those the sort of emotional points that like humans have when you hear like singing or you hear, you know, and you see, you know, it's choreographed and you have big visuals, you know, it kind of triggers a lot of things sometimes in, in, in people's minds. I think that a brand new day is a black disco version or like a black disco, like version of put on your Sunday clothes. It's like a huge over the top thing, but it's like, it's like, soul music and disco I I just I just loved it and so um that's why it's my my redeemed flop for this week uh I just think it's spectacular they do not make music like this anymore like at all um I think you should give it a listen I cannot get through this song without smiling or just you know just it just it just puts me in a good mood You know, there's some other fun facts, like as we wrap it up, like about the Wiz. We mentioned the song "Home" and how there are two versions of "Home," uh, one by Stephanie Mills, one by Diana Ross. And the Diana Ross version is good, but it's very, it's much more like the musical, right? Whereas Stephanie Mills' version was a single that was released to like radio, yeah. Um, and it's it's got that '80s production style to it. Mm-hmm. Um. I like both of them, but I always wondered why there were two versions. Yeah. And then when I read, I read the story about how you know Diana Ross basically killed Stephanie Mills' chances of being in the. I was like, oh, yeah, because she never got to sing her version. Well, because I also wonder, like, I you know Spotify doesn't have the like original Broadway cast recording of the yeah. Wiz anywhere. So yeah. I was always wondering, like, whatever happened to that? Like, I, I think it exists somewhere. Like, I'm sure you can it find must. it on vinyl or something. But um, yeah, by and large, the Stephanie Mills version of The Wiz is is kind of lost to the ages. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, for me personally, it's like that move of Diana Ross kind of wrangling her way into this role. You know, y- mm-hmm. you think about you think about like Whitney Houston optioning the rights to the Cinderella musical, right? Mm-hmm. Originally intending to play Cinderella herself. But by mm-hmm. the time it actually gets into production, what Whitney's already into her thirties. She's the time. in her thirties. She was. She had a kid. Yeah, and she, you know, at that point, wisely sees. Yeah, graciously you know, the yeah. writing on the wall saying, you know, you know, pass this torch on, and she casts Brandy, a Cinderella. Um, even you know, I was when we were talking about Jordan Sparks starring in the revival of um, Sparkle. Mm-hmm. I think it was Sparkle. Is Sparkle considered a black black exploitation movie? But it's of that era, right? Even if it's not yeah. black exploitation, it's like late seventies. Um, it's of that. It's it's of this time. I don't know if it was Motown. It might have actually been. A, I have to go back and look because yeah. I didn't realize that it was a whole production studio and pipeline and you know what I mean. So yeah, I mean it was a musical of the era, so it might have been. I mean yeah. Aretha, but even know, was friends obviously. So even like the boy. remake rights to Sparkle, I think. I think Whitney Houston had something to do with the rights to it too. But, you know, originally they had been trying to make that movie from like 2000, the year 2000. And Mm -hmm. Aaliyah was originally supposed to be starring in it. Mm. It could have been Aaliyah instead of Jordan Sparks. Had that, had that gotten, uh, 
Oh, that's sad. I think it I might have actually that. partially been, you know, shelved because Aaliyah passed away mm-hmm. in what, 2001? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's and it, it is one of those things where it's like that movie is much better because you have the dynamic between Brandy or sorry, I'm talking about Cinderella, Cinderella. <laughs> between Brandy and Whitney as the fairy godmother, mm-hmm. right? Like it's just better. It would have been terrible if she'd played Cinderella. <laughs> I mean, because cuz cuz Whitney beautiful voice not known for her acting i mean she she did act quite a bit but it was i don't i wouldn't say that was a highlight of her uh career like acting i mean she she made those roles she was in iconic movies i guess like waiting to exhale the preacher's wife i like mm-hmm. i don't know if it's iconic but yeah you know um but yeah so 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 you know kills kills stephanie mills thing i i love stephanie mills version of home and i actually you know, Home by Diana Ross is one of those where, you know, it, it does really use her kind of wispy, whispery, the, the parts of her voice that are very thin to great emotive effect. And by the time you do get to the end, it is shocking how much power and and range Diana Ross has. I think that that's, that's something about Home, um, which I did not give her credit for, you know, for a long time. <laughs> Um, but it's that is a beautiful song. So so yeah. Anyway, I just thought it was funny. That's how, that's why there's two versions of that song. And then there's another thing. I so because of you know as I was going through this, I was like, wait, I like this. I like a brand new day. I love home. Um, let me just listen to the full soundtrack. So I didn't have time to watch the movie, but I did listen to the full soundtrack. And there's a lot of I like I like a lot of the music, and I think that speaks uh to you know Quincy Jones sort of um his his talent like you know he's a maestro like he's he's amazing and his ability to kind of you know pull together all of these different sonic references into one thing so it is a musical but it feels of the era in a way that like Quincy Jones music is like you always know that it's Quincy you know that you know it's like a Michael Jackson song or whatever and so you know it's of a certain era but it still sounds fresh and that's how I felt about this but Linda not Linda <laughs> Lena Horn, Lena Horn plays Glinda the Good Witch, and Lena Horn is a fame. You know, she's just in a you know one of one of the most beloved um, black singers. Um, you know, of the of the similar eras like Ella Fitzgerald, Sarah Vaughan, um, Carmen McRae, like jazzy um, bluesy singer, and um, I never she's she's done many songs but i don't normally like the way she sings mm-hmm. um it's very brassy and like i can feel like i can feel her singing through her teeth like gosh it's very stylized paris yeah paris you know um she does as uh, the it's like the closing ballad for this movie and it's called if you believe and i hit this song and i was like wait a minute is this my favorite Lena Horne song? And I was trying to figure out like why, because I'd never heard her sing like this. And I realized it's basically a Gladys Knight song done by Lena Horne. Like it, <sighs> it, it, she sings it soulful, right? Uh-huh. And and I didn't know she had that range because I'd always heard her in this sort of stylized, more jazz standard, you know, voice. Did not know she did. She did this when she was 61 and she sounds fantastic. She was also, by the way, Sydney Lumet's mother-in-law at the time of filming. So huh. he was married four times, divorced three. So I don't know which wife Sydney this was. Sydney Lumet's mother-in-law. Yeah. Okay. 
at the time of this, at the time the movie came out. So that was one of, I mean, not that that's why she's in it, but I'm sure there was like, a you know, obviously there's a relationship there. Um, and if you watch the clip, so I'd never seen the clip, obviously, she's singing this. It's very sparkly. And in the background, suspended behind her, are all of these like bedazzled baby dolls. Okay. I think they're supposed to look like children floating in bubbles. like, But they're very clearly stationary baby dolls in glitter dresses with angel halos or something like sparkles because then it's intercut with close-up shots of real children that are in the same costumes but there's never a wide shot to show them together so like she's singing and behind her are like on the wall like just these baby dolls (laughs) suspended in organza it's it's kind of crazy okay um it's it is camp glamour um (laughs) And that's it. That's Camp Glamour. That's 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 a brand new day. It is like my favorite thing. Um, you know, it's sad that it didn't get its due at the time, but I love it and I think you will too. Yeah. Excellent, excellent news. <laughs> <laughs> It's a brand new day. I mean, the jury our, our jury is still out on, as to whether or not this is actually a good movie at all. But yeah, I think our consensus so we'll is like report. our consensus, however, at this point in time, is that the the source materials for it all deserved much better than the reception that it received. And it certainly did not deserve to be credited with the downfall of like an entire genre of cinema. Absolutely. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. So all the wonders that we could have seen Diana Ross do on on film in the eighties. She just ended up singing the soundtrack for uh, "Remember Land Before Time." Is that the one the about the dinosaurs? dinosaurs? Okay, yeah, when didn't see we it. Go on together. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, anyway, that is it. Check it out, folks. Um, we will be hitting you next time. I'm gonna do an outro because we are right on the money. Look at that. Right on the money, Jason. Good job. I'd like to give some special thanks today. Special thanks to Adam Elder for composing our theme music. Songs and videos featured in today's episode will be posted to our website, flopperdeemer.com. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice. And check us out on social media at flopperdeemer on Instagram and Twitter and at facebook.com slash flopperdeemer. As always, you can email us, uh, send us your revisions retractions corrections angry mail lovely mail all the mail all the email to flopredeemer at gmail.com we did it au revoir